Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by the Maison Française at Columbia University, Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Lieber, Professor of Sociology and Political Philosophy, Andreas Wimmer's book, Nation Building, Why Some Countries Come Together While Others Fall Apart. First, we'll hear Andreas speaking about his book at the panel, and later, I'll bring you the comments Mahatma Gandhi, Associate Professor of Political Science and International and Public Affairs at Brown University, Prana Singh, made about Andreas' book. Uh, empirically not to be uh, 
work, and I'm going through this uh, sort of quickly. I'm just going to give you a broad outline. So first, it's not really a matter of democratic uh, regimes. So it's not the case that democracies are systematically produce systematically more inclusionary conditions than other kinds of political regimes. It's also not surprisingly a matter of economic development. You find integrated um, uh, diverse ruling coalitions in poor countries and in rich countries. It's also not a matter of colonial legacies, like a lot of people seem to think. It's not uh, the case that long histories of colonial or imperial rule lead a legacy of more political inequality uh, over time. It's also not a matter of styles of colonial rule. It's not that uh, directly, formally, uh, economies uh, that have been directly. Um, French style are less or more uh, able to use diverse uh, governing positions than indirectly rule British style. Colonialism. Separate colonialism, such as in the Americas, is not systematically different in terms of the legacy that it leaves for um, nation building and non settler colonialism, such as in um, Nigeria. I also don't find that um, the legacy of slavery is important to understand the contemporary power configuration that you find across the world. And so on, so on. So there's a whole range of other kinds of arguments that I'm looking at. It's not the case that it's easier to imagine certain nations, as one could argue from a cultural uh, point of view. Uh, if there's a long history of statehood, like in Korea or in Japan, there's just you know, newer countries. So that's not also uh, a crucial factor. I also find that ethnic demographies uh, are not that important. So when you have religious and uh, linguistic boundaries that crisscross each other a lot of people have argued that depoliticizes and divides, just uh, cross pressures and so on. But I don't find that this is really that important. I also don't find that globalization um, is an important factor. So countries that have been exposed to global norms of multicultural inclusion, um, minority representation and so on, are not having more inclusionary governing coalitions and others. So all that, uh, I mean, I don't, you cannot discard these arguments completely, I just don't find strong enough evidence to pursue them. And uh, instead, I suggest to focus on slow-moving processes of domestic political development, um, and to search for historical causes by going back um, in time. And um, what are crucial I argue are the structure of political alliance networks, um, and um, if they do reach across ethnic divides, if you have multi-ethnic political alliances, then you will have more diverse, it's likely that you will have more diverse uh, governing coalitions and ethnic and racial divides will be less politicized. And so the question then is, what are the conditions under which such multi-ethnic diverse forms of political alliances will emerge. And um, so I'm going to walk you through the argument very quickly with this uh, little diagram here. So that's the crucial thing that I would like to explain when multi-ethnic alliance networks emerge and therefore inclusionary coalitions are more likely to form. This in turn the leads to populations that are more identifiable, positively identifiable in the nation. If you 
find somebody that, that, who is like you, similar ethnic background, in the seats of government, you're more likely to embrace the idea of the national community of shared um, political destiny. So when, where do these inclusionary coalitions come from? I argue that three factors are crucial. One, if you have um, a dense networks of civil society organizations, trade unions, professional associations, mountain biking clubs, uh, nurses associations, and these kinds of things. You have a political infrastructure on which um, uh, political alliance networks can spread and uh, produce more inclusionary, more diverse political alliance systems overall. Second, I argue that states that are capable of providing public goods across their territory are more attractive alliance partners for citizens at large. And more people, more citizens will try to establish an alliance, through intermediary organizations and so on, with uh, the state and therefore, again, heterogeneous, ethnically heterogeneous political alliances will form. And finally, linguistic homogeneity reduces the costs for establishing political alliances easier to trust each other, communicate with each other effectively, and therefore also help to proliferate um, these alliance work uh, networks across the different regions of the country. Now I go back, further back into history, and I ask, well, where do some of these factors come from? And the argument here is that uh, we have to go to uh, 18th and 19th century level of state centralization, where there was um, centralized um, bureaucratic states, such as in the case of Japan or China, or there wasn't such a state, uh, such as in the case of Tanzania or um, other parts of the world. Actually, I would have loved the third arrow to go up to the voluntary organizations, as well as for reasons of aesthetics and symmetry. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, with this kind of research, you know, sometimes reality talks back, and so, Sorry about that. Um, and then I asked, where do these uh, inherited levels of decentralization come from? And I that's, that makes it a little bit more shaky, the analysis. Um, I argue that um, um, we have to, again, look at long-term, slow-moving historical processes, population density early in, in the uh, late Middle Ages, um, uh, make the emergence of centralized policy much more likely. Classical uh, Tillian, uh, Chuck Tilly, who was uh, a faculty colleague here at Columbia for a long time, um, uh, according to which war, according to wars, uh, lead to a kind of a self reinforcing process of state centralization over time, and then failed topography is another uh, factor. So that's the, the outline of the argument. And uh, I'm going to quickly tell you what's in the book, you know, the kind of chapter overview. So, uh, one chapter, sorry, there's three chapters that are qualitative in nature and that pursue a pair of countries over uh, 100 or 200 years. And uh, I, each of these pairs shows how each of these three major mechanisms works in historical reality, you know, process tracing and so on. Trying to you know, really show how these um, things matter in the concrete details of how political alliances form, who with whom, whether they do or do not stretch across ethnic lines. So the comparison between Switzerland and Belgium from the early 19th century all the way to the 
1900s illustrates how these voluntary organizations matter in the development of these two countries. And I forgot to say, each of these cases, one is a negative case, as it were, and one is a positive case. So in the case of Switzerland, nation building, an inclusionary coalition forum broke down since 1848, and basically stayed the same um, uh, until today, when Belgium, um, that wasn't the case. I think I can't go into the details of these cases right now, so I'm going to just tell you which the cases are. Um, uh, another chapter then compares Botswana as a successful case of nation building with an obviously not very successful case Somalia, that's from the 1900s um, onwards. That illustrates the state capacity um, mechanism. And then um, there's a chapter, I think it's China to Russia um, from the 1800s onwards all the way to the contemporary uh, post-war period. And that illustrates how the linguistic homogeneity mechanism works. Precisely in the case of China, it's actually scriptural homogeneity. In fact, there is a uniform script that is equally distant to all the spoken languages that uh, was greatly instrumental in facilitating alliance networks, political alliance networks, to spread throughout the um, core region of the country. And then there's statistical chapters. Um, one um, is um, uh, looking at these earlier kind of periods and how centralized states formed by the 19th century. That's about 120 countries with all kinds of data sources. And in the same chapter, I take them the story to the contemporary period and I show how all these mechanisms, these three mechanisms actually uh, work. And then there's chapter six, um, the one for which Deborah bears uh, all responsibility, which is uh, one that shows then how these inclusionary congregations of power um, enhance the identification of the population with the uh, national community. And then finally, there's a chapter where I go into some more policy and development um, issues. Um, and I'm looking at AFCA, a survey from Afghanistan. So the contributions that I'm trying to make is, uh, number one, to rescue the term and the topic from US foreign policy debates, and to um, um, revitalize a scholarship that has been pioneered by an older generation of modernization scores in the 1950s and 60s who actually introduced the terms. I would like to um, uh, bring the topic of the discussion about what it takes uh, for countries to come together politically away from these uh, quite narrow uh, foreign policy debates. I would like to add methodological and analytical rigor to that enterprise, that intellectual enterprise, by combining quantitative and quantitative um, uh, analysis of your kind of mixed method um, uh, research, and I would like to show that's more kind of a disciplinary um, uh, methodological, I should say, um, uh, motive that the promise of this kind of macro comparative uh, tradition where you study the whole world in all these countries and so on is not yet exhausted, and that we can actually carefully disentangle complex historically intertwined processes um, with appropriate methods and analysis you don't have to necessarily go into the lab and study pure causality um, untainted by these kind of recursive historical processes. 
And substantially, I would like to show that these long-term, slow-moving, um, generational processes are crucial to understand um, these kind of processes rather than uh, events and other you know, more fast-paced social movements, uh, military crews, and so on, more fast-paced um, aspects. So the kind of um, view of history that I take in this book is one where I look at how these uh, countries are set and uh, remain on different equilibrium paths um, while the, you know, the, the actual uh, details of the governing coalitions and so on is indeed influenced by events, by more fast-paced uh, things like these uh, uh, somewhat naively portrayed here as these red arrows. Uh, um, the, the overall shape of development is nevertheless along a specific um, evolutionary Thanks. Now, we'll hear Prana Singh speaking about Andrea's book at the panel. Hi, everyone. I'm in this room. And it's a pleasure it is to be on this panel of distinguished scholars, um, old, dear friends, um, and new acquaintances. And nation building, much like Andrea's previous books, uh, to me is a model of deep thought, of very careful argumentation, of creative and sophisticated multi-method research, and of painstaking data collection, which is both qualitative and statistical. And lastly, as Gwen has already pointed out, but certainly not the least, perhaps because it is so rare in social science, it is precise and yet beautifully crafted writing, which is a real pleasure to read. Um, I especially love Andreas's presentation of um, his own theory, a uh, more deterministic view of history as compared uh, to a theory of history as pure contingency, following uh, Asimov, Kuhn, and Robinson, which was explained through an extended, but I thought quite brilliant, analogy of rats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if that's an interruption, to me, the book follows an arc, um, as she was pointed out, of sustained and systematic analysis of a question that has clearly interested Andreas for many years, which is why certain countries come together across <coughs> ethnic divides and others don't. And as James pointed out, Andres is quite self-conscious in saying that this is the last one in what has now become a quadrilogy. Um, but I have some contrary thoughts that I'll keep to the end. Um, so the outcome of interest here is clearly nation building. Um, and the subtitle is why some countries come together and others uh, fall apart. And I want to structure my comments today around the theme of what I thought of uh, a slight disjunct between an understanding of what is nation building and how this nation building is to be achieved. So what is nation building? As Andreas laid out himself, it's identification with the nation, it's a perception of the community of lived solidarity, and it's a shared political destiny. So to me, that's a very affective understanding of the nation. And it is measured um, quite complementarily, in a sense, with the degree of national identification um, by survey measures. So the extent to which uh, people say, for instance, how proud they are to be a part um, of a nation. And this nation building is to be achieved um, through a combination of factors. Uh, early on, Andrea says that political integration and national identification form the two sides of the nation building coin. But I think a more accurate description actually comes on page 20, uh, when he says that political integration is actually the root or the mechanism to national identification, which then becomes a proxy for nation building. 
But this political integration is entirely institutional. So the nation is affective, but the root to it is institutional. So how does this institutional translate into the affective? How is the community of shared destiny to be created from institutions of basically making sure that ethnic minorities and majorities all share power at the table? And the press does an admirable job, as you saw in that um, figure that he put up, of specifying the mechanisms of what leads to ethno-political inclusion. And these are very carefully laid out and they extend far back in time. But by contrast, as you might have noticed, there's just a single arrow that connects ethno-political inclusion to national identification. So the idea is that once you kind of include ethnic minorities, that in itself is simply sufficient to generate identification with the nation. And this leads me to two questions, which is, does an integration of ethnic minorities necessarily and always lead to nation building? And secondly, can you have nation building without the integration of ethnic minorities? So the first question, which is, does ethnopolitical inclusion lead to nation building? Mm -hmm. um, there's an impressive statistical analysis, as there is in much of the books, especially in chapter six, which suggests that yes, and Andres collects this data from representative surveys from about 123 countries, um, and he finds this kind of positive correlation uh, between um, citizens of more exclusionary states are less identified with their country and vice versa, and he also does this at the group level. But what is the mechanism? How does this happen? And to quote Andres on page 16, he says, when there is a forging of political ties between citizens and the state, that reach across ethnic divides and integrate ethnic majorities and minorities into an inclusive power-sharing arrangement, then two things happen. Firstly, the salience of ethnicity in the polity declines. And secondly, there is an undermining of support for separatism. And an inclusive national community emerges and nation building can be said to have succeeded." End quote. So does being a part of a power-sharing agreement make you less ethnic. I can easily imagine a dynamic, and this is certainly played out in many parts of the world, including India, which I study, where being a representative of your ethnic group at the table, especially an ethnic minority, in a bar sharing arrangement can actually make you feel and act more ethnic. And does simply not feeling ethnic, of not being an ethnic separatist, mean that you are a nationalist? Because in this understanding, national identification becomes an almost residual category. To me, nationalism is not simply the absence of the negative. It's not that you know, ethnicity is not dividing people. It's the presence of something positive, of nation building, as something that binds people together, as something about allegiance, about pride, and I'll return to this in a bit. So how does this positive national attachment that is independent and above ethnicity get constructed? I think here are actually some of the variables that Andreas highlights as influencing ethno-political inclusion, um, notably the railways and public goods provision, might actually be influencing national identification as well. And Gwen, and perhaps this reflects our shared training under Deborah and other advisors at Princeton, already mentioned Eugen Weber. But I was also thinking more of work by Keith Darden, which Andreas references, which is that education can offer a direct conduit to nation building. And he himself mentions this book, The Histories of the Swiss, as playing a very important role in the construction of the Swiss nation. The second question is, can you have nation building even if you have strong ethnic allegiances? 
it, for Andreas, um, ethnicity needs to decline for nation building to occur. But the two, to me, are not necessarily incompatible. There are a number of scholars who stress actually the compatibility between strong ethnic identities and strong national identities. There's much research on people holding dual, if not multiple, identities. Opinion surveys indicate, for instance, on the World Value Survey, but also the International Social Survey Program, that Turks, Roma, Francophones, Basque, and Catalans, this is early 2000s, who express that they feel very close to their ethnic group are actually slightly more likely to be patriotic. And there is actually evidence from the US um, that a stronger attachment to their ethnic groups makes Latinos more strongly identify with a US national identity. Now, 2B, this is 2A, so 2B is can you have nation building even without the integration of ethnic minorities? And here I want to use Andres's own case of China as a kind of slightly different twist to the way he presents it. So Andres presents China as a case, very interestingly, not of linguistic, but scriptural homogeneity, which I think is a, is a very creative way to think about it. But to Andres, China is a successful case of nation building, but to me it's a case of nation building without ethno-political inclusion. There is very little integration of ethnic minorities in China. The Uyghurs and the Tibetans who inhabit geographic homelands that together constitute more than half of the geographic landmass of contemporary PRC are, I don't think we could argue that they actually are ethnopolitically integrated. So I would say that, you know, if by, in your own book, I would say that there is an example of patient building without ethnopolitical um, inclusion. So I've known Andres for many years, um, and I've admired his work for over a decade. And in recent years, I think I've been very fortunate to begin thinking of him as a friend. So I'll end with what might be a difficult question to impose, even on a friendship, which is um, to get to the question himself. So does nation building really square the circle of your intellectual journey on this question of ethnic politics and nationalism? Or is there really one more, I think, quite important book still here? And to put it more boldly, is it not perhaps the case, in fact, that this book is actually very explicitly opening out into another book, which is quite different from the four that you have already written? So Nation Building follows most directly on Andres's first book, um, which I actually think I read in a class with Deborah, um, called Nationalist Exclusion of Ethnic Conflicts, um, and which, as the name suggests, is really about national exclusion. Then there's ethnic boundary making, which is about how population groups that vary in terms of power and resources um, negotiate with each other and how these boundaries get created. And, and then there was the waves of war, which talks about how post-colonial nation building fails and then the politically excluded ethnic groups wage secessionist wars. So in all of these books, to me, there's this underlying theme, which is that conflict is a product of differences in power and resources and ethno-political inclusion helps resolve this conflict. And so even though the first and the last books in this quadrilogy have the word nation in their title, to me they're really about how do you mitigate ethnic divides. And what we're discussing today, nation building, according to its subtitle, is about why some countries come together while others fall apart, but I would say it's really much more about the second part of that subtitle. It's really about why some countries don't fall apart. It's about you know, how you might alleviate ethnic grievances through power-sharing agreements. To me, the next book that you will write <laughs> will answer the second part of that subtitle, 
for the first part of that subtext, which is how and why do some countries come together? A book that moves away from a focus on the management of ethnic differences to really a question of how do you imagine a nation? How do you construct a nation? How do you, how do you kind of in, really engage in this more positive task? And in a sense, it is curious that a book called Nation Building is a book in which there's almost no mention of a nation building project. Mm -hmm. There are no Creole pioneers, there are no newspapers, there are no flags, there are no symbols, there are no tombs for fallen soldiers, there are no statues for heroes, there are no anthems. So the closest that Andreas comes to this is in chapter two, which I enjoyed much like the rest of the book, when he begins to discuss uh, Switzerland and the role of voluntary associations in nation building in Switzerland. But it's almost here as if he discusses what to me is a very fascinating account of the construction of the Swiss nation, almost despite itself. So he talks about voluntary associations that developed in Switzerland at two points in time. The first time period is in the 18th and the first part of the 19th century. And he talks about the Helvetic Society, the Swiss Society for Natural, Resource, uh, Natural Research, the Swiss Society for Artists, the Swiss Society for the Public Good, the Swiss Society of Officers, um, and also the Swiss Association of Athletics. Um, the second time period is the First World War, when the new Helvetic Society gets created. And to me, this description was really interesting that these associations uh, were creating these patriotic reunions, and they were propagating a patriotic spirit. So what these voluntary associations, or quote, proto-nationalist organizations, as Andreas himself terms them, are doing in Andreas's own empirical description is constructing an idea of being Swiss. But what they're doing in his theory is that they're simply allowing for the forging of the institutions of ethnic power sharing. So Andreas has this rich description of these voluntary associations that me are creating what it means to be Swiss, but when he says what they're doing, he says, quote, trans and trans-ethnic voluntary organizations in Switzerland thus explain why an inclusionary power structure developed after the crucial turning point of nation-state formation in 1848, and it also helps explain why the country did not break apart along linguistic lines in the second critical juncture during the First World War. So the book that I hope Andreas writes next is the one that does not reduce these voluntary proto-nationalist associations to helping bridge ethnic divides and create structures of ethnic power sharing, but gives them their theoretical due as potentially constructing nation. So this book that I'm suggesting that Andreas writes is a very big ask, because first it pushes him to reconsider his stance as what I would term a reluctant constructivist. Second, it pushes against his long-standing understanding of ethnic and national politics. Um, the preface, which Gwen already highlighted, describes how in school in Switzerland, um, this, the schooling was what really shaped Andreas' understanding of ethnic politics, and he says, I quote, in middle school, we debated feminist, social democratic, and conservative views. Um, in high school, we had Trotskyist, Maoist, Protestant fundamentalist, and hippie Christian groups, but nobody cared about ethnic identities. So whether you spoke German or Italian um, or French didn't matter. And to be sure, our collective intellectual milieu is so much richer for this masterful oeuvre of women writing about how inclusion into or exclusion from structures of power defines ethnic relations. 
But I want to ask in conclusion, Andreas today, not the adolescent Andreas, but in the prime of his life, to consider whether nation building in Switzerland is simply a matter of the relative lack of salience of ethnic identities because of these historic institutions of power sharing, or is there something more? Might we be here one day discussing a book in the pages of which we encounter an Andreas Wimmer wearing his anthropologist heart more boldly on his sleeve, but his social scientist tools all still very sharpened, who thinks about what is at the heart of feeling Swiss, who thinks about what it might, might mean to read the story of William Tell or gaze at the Edelweiss. I, for one, will be thrilled by such an Finally, we'll hear Andrea's response to Perna. Well, you guys are wonderful, and you've been so generous, not only with your time, but also with your comments, and I sucked in all the praise. I wish I had recorded. It's actually being recorded, so I can play it over and over again, and cut out the criticism, and make you know a little cheer-up uh, video that I can watch on my iPhone uh, whenever I'm feeling depressed. So thank you very much. Um, uh, lots of different things that have been said, uh, very good, very sharp comments, as I was afraid of they would do, um, beautifully delivered. And then Prerna, I'm not going to write a fifth book, you should do it, you're much better at this um, than I am. It's kind of funny, I try to be like a political scientist, you know, it's another of my intellectual complexes that kind of drive me. I try to be accepted by you guys. Uh, or sociologists for that matter, and now you push me back into anthropology and say, you know, study symbols, study flags, <laughs> tomb of the soldiers, and what people feel when they walk by these tombs. Um, so I actually uh, am not that keen on this kind of symbolistic or uh, uh, cultural, genuine cultural explanations of these things. You know, there's all kinds of identities floating around, there's all kinds of ideas about national communities are generated by intellectuals constantly. And I think the ones that actually stick um, are the ones that where you have an, uh, a power configuration that kind of goes together with it. People will start identifying with the kind of communities among the many communities that are offered to them. You could be one of us, you could be with other people come and say, you could be one of us, and so on. The ones where uh, the identity offers where people then will uh, eventually accept is the one that goes together with actual uh, political representation and with, with um, also with uh, an, another Tillian um, uh, argument goes together with effective public goods provision. I show this empirically in the case of Afghanistan. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Andreas Wimmer's nation building, why some countries come together while others fall apart. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Mark Taylor's last works, Lessons in Leaving. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.